There you go, Matthew chapter 14. Begin to read at verse 22. Let's, let's read this scripture together. Immediately after this, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and cross to the other side of the lake while he sent the people home. After sending them home, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. Night fell while he was there alone. Meanwhile, the disciples were in trouble far away from land, for a strong wind had risen and they were fighting heavy waves. About three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them walking on the water. When the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified. In their fear, they cried out, It's a ghost! But Jesus spoke to them at once. Don't be afraid, he said. Take courage, I am here. Then Peter called to him, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you walking on the water. Yes, come, Jesus said. So Peter went over the side of the boat and walked on the water toward Jesus. But when he saw the strong wind and the waves, he was terrified and began to sink. Save me, Lord, he shouted. Jesus immediately reached out and grabbed him. You have so little faith, Jesus said. Why did you doubt me? When they climbed back into the boat, the wind stopped. Then the disciples worshipped him. You really are the Son of God, they exclaimed. Thank you so much. Lord bless you as you're seated. We're not going to be speaking this morning about Peter. We're going to be talking about what to do when you are stuck in a storm. The Bible has lots of lessons to talk to us about which is related to storms and wind and waves and the ocean. One of them is found early in the book of Genesis in chapter 6 through 8. We have the story, of course, of the global flood and how God instructed Noah to build an ark and God wiped out the world because of its sin. And in that story, we're reminded that when you just choose to live separate from God, when you choose to live according to your own sinful ways, eventually you find yourself in over your head. That judgment does come. We also read the story of, uh, of Jonah and the storm that landed him in the belly of a great fish. And it's a reminder that God will use storms sometimes in all of our lives in order to make us readjust our lives, to reevaluate where we're going, what we're giving ourselves to. He will use storms to get us back on track and to be doing what our life was really intended to be about. There's also a storm that Jesus used as an illustration in his Sermon on the Mountainside, and he said these words to those listening. He said, if you hear my words and you do them, then you will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock, and when the storms of life come, you will stand because of the way you've been learning to live. You've been learning to not just hear my words. In fact, Jesus warns, don't just hear what I'm saying. And friends, that, that's a sermon in itself, because we can just be so used to being surrounded by Christian things, biblical things, cliches, all that kind of stuff. Jesus says it's not the hearing that changes your life, it's the doing. It's, it's getting God's Word into the fabric of who you are so that as, as storms come, then you're able to make wise decisions based on what you have proven and what you have learned. And Jesus says, but if you are someone who only hears and you never do what I'm telling you to do, he said that you can be compared to the person who built their, ha their house on sand, and when the storm comes, of course, that house collapses. 
And there's a poignant lesson there for us because in my view, when I read the Scripture, I kind of picture on the outside, these houses look the same. They look the same. But one fell, one stood. And of course, we know the lesson there. We can all look the same on the outside. In fact, we see that many times, don't we? We see how we can kind of look the same, act the same as believers when all is going well, but let the storm come and all of a sudden different people react in different ways and you kind of see really where our faith is in the Lord. Well, the story we just read uh, this morning is one of two episodes in the life of Jesus when he is on the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. Uh, one time, you remember, Jesus was actually in the boat and he was sleeping. And this storm rises up and the disciples panic, they're in fear for their lives, and they wake Jesus and of course he speaks and he calms the storm. In this story we read here in Matthew 14, Jesus isn't with them when they begin their journey. And I think it's, uh, it's, a, it's a picture here for us of a very important lesson in life. That just like the much needed, needed rains that we have in the natural world oftentimes are accompanied with a storm, there are storms that we can go through in life that really end up being a blessing. We may not like getting wet along the way. We may not like some of the turmoil that happens along the way, but we actually, at the end of the storm, discover that it was good for us. We needed those rains. Uh, Matthew says in verse 24, he says, The boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. Now, again, this is not a storm like the disciples encountered in Mark chapter 4, where they were, literally were terrified for their lives. They woke Jesus up because they were sure, as experienced boatmen, that they were going to go under. This time, they're just struggling against very strong wind and, and the waves that come with that strong wind. And I really think it's a picture of the kind of things that often gets us stuck in life. Uh, we might have a plan. We might have a dream, we might have a certain ambition, we may have a certain expectation or hope the way that our life is supposed to go or certain things are supposed to unfold, but it just seems like everything is against it, whether it's circumstances or people or sometimes even our own, our own lack of resources. Now, as I said, the disciples, most of them were very skilled in knowing how to navigate a ship, uh, a boat in those days. Uh, if you're familiar at all with the geography, the topography of of, of Palestine, of Israel, you know that the Sea of Galilee is actually about 600 feet below sea level. And though the uh, ridges around them are not necessarily mountains, they're very high hills, and, and they, they climb very, very quickly. You can find yourself up very high in a short bit of time because of the slope of these hills. But because of the hills that surround the lake, then the winds that come along from the top, they blow into that, into that hollow, and very quickly you can find yourselves in just a few moments going from a calm to a storm. And so these guys find themselves in a situation where they're kind of going directly opposite the way they want to go. Now the story is also recorded in the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of John, which when you read the three together, it gives you kind of a better picture of the time frame of all that is going on at this time. We're told in John chapter 6, for example, that it was basically getting dark when they begin to set out on this trip in the boat. And now it's 3 o'clock in the morning, and they're only three miles offshore. So imagine getting into the boat, it's just getting dark, maybe it's 9 o'clock, maybe it's 10 o'clock, but these experienced boatmen are five, six, maybe more hours into the trip, and they've only made three miles. 
So it gives you a bit of an idea of the headwind that, that they're facing that's, that's coming against them. And again, I want us to understand that this is really a picture of circumstances uh, that we all face. But it's not a circumstance that's going to completely ruin you or, or destroy you. But they, these circumstances do two things. Number one, they drain you. They just exhaust you. They wear you down. And number two, they block your progress so it seems like it's just taking you forever to get where your heart longs to be. Uh, that destination, maybe that dream in your heart, that ambition that you have. We all go through things like that where it takes a lot longer than planned and we just can't seem to go where we want to go. I want to suggest this morning a few things that we need to remember when we're stuck in a storm. And I trust there are some people here this morning who feel this way and this word is really for you. Number one, I think we need to remember, we need to do this. We need to accept the fact that God's hand is in it. When you're stuck in a storm, accept the fact that God's hand is in it. And also remember this. God put me here to settle my soul, not to sink my ship. What I mean by settling of soul is that as believers, especially in this opulent kind of culture that we live in, materialistic culture, oftentimes we mistake knowing Christ, really knowing the Lord and His will and being used by Him as simply life going well or circumstances being agreeable. Uh, finances are good, life is good, nobody's sick, all that kind of stuff. That The blessing of God. And we forget that really the blessing of God is the person of Jesus Christ being formed in me. That's the greatest blessing. That's the greatest treasure, Paul says. We have this treasure, Jesus Christ, in this body of flesh, these earthen vessels. Why? That we might show the glory of God. We might show the reality of Christ. And so a lot of times as believers, we gauge the blessing of the goodness of God by just how well or how smoothly life is going, but it may not translate into real effectiveness for the kingdom, the character, the quality, the depth that Christ wants to form in us so that we really are kingdom-minded people. And as was shared earlier, we really maximize the benefits of what it means to be the people of God. Matthew writes this in verse 22. He says in this situation that Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and cross to the other side of the lake while he sent the people home, the people being the thousands that he fed with a bit of bread and a few fish. Now, it's really easy to kind of skip over this word, but Matthew intentionally uses a very strong word here to underline the fact that Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. Now, you may wonder, well, why would he kind of make them get into the boat? Well, some suggest it was because the disciples, number one, just didn't want to go anywhere without him, which makes sense. Like, where are you going to be, Jesus? We just came off a miracle. This is great. You know, this is fine. Let's, let's keep doing this. Come with us. Or it may have been because in that incident, they were wanting to make him king, and Jesus didn't want to be made king. And so they may have been worried, well, if we leave Jesus by himself, who knows what the crowd is going to do? So we're kind of concerned for his well-being. All we know is that Jesus actually forces the issue. He is the one that insists they get back into the boat. A second thing we know is that Jesus is more, very likely very aware of what's going to happen. Uh, we know he was led by the Spirit. Maybe the Lord didn't tell him at the time, but we're usually quite convinced that he knew it was going to happen. And so there seems to be a plan that he's set in motion, and it begins with making these guys get into the boat. And, and when I read that, I thought, you know, it really speaks to circumstances we find ourselves in 
as followers of Christ where we don't really have any choice. Have you ever found yourself in that situation? You find yourself confronting something, doing something, whatever, and basically you realize, I don't have a chance in this. I'm just going to have to grin and bear it. I'm just going to have to, you know, I'm just going to have to do what I, what I have to do. And it's not a matter of any compromising that you're making on your part, but you know that this is something you're just going to have to plow through. This isn't going to change with time. It's, the Lord's not going to wave a magic wand and make it go away. You just have this sense, this is a season that I've got to plow through. And so we all have times like that. We all have times that we face things that we don't really have a way of controlling. But what I want us to see is this, and it's very important, is that Jesus is making them get into the boat. Because hear me, friends, all of us have either had or in the midst of or will have struggles that God has not designed, but he has assigned you to go through it. Do you hear me this morning? God has not designed the problem, but it is your assignment from Him to go through it. There's something that He wants to do in and through your life. Jesus didn't go up the hill and then create the storm. He went up the hill to pray, and then the Bible says the storm came. And I really believe that the Lord places us in circumstances knowing very well what we're going to face. But it's not because He has designed the hardship. It's because there's something he wants to settle in us. There's something he wants to establish in us. He wants to, us to move from cliches to certainty, to conviction. He wants us to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, being made conformed to him. He wants to settle that in our heart. And so he says, I've not designed this problem, but I know it's going to come up, and I'm steering you toward it straight on, not to go around it, because there's something I want to settle in you. I'm not here to sink your ship. I'm here to settle your soul. I want to move you away from the cotton candy gospel. I want to move you away from the easy believism. I want to bring you down that narrow gully, you might say, like the, like the Sea of Galilee itself. I want to begin to work some establish some things in you, I want to bring that settledness within your heart. I believe there's another lesson here as well. When you read Matthew 14 and 15, you see these tremendous amount of miracles that seem to bracket or parenthesize this, this event on the Sea of Galilee. For example, before they get into the boat, the disciples, disciples have seen Jesus feed at least 5,000. The Scripture says, 5,000 men, not counting women and children. So the crowd of probably 10, 15, 20,000 people, we don't know, but this huge crowd of people, the disciples are part of this miracle. Then they go through the storm, and on the other side, when they get there, among other things that happen, the Bible says, again, thousands of people come to Jesus, and he touches all of them and makes them whole. He casts out demons. He, 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 he uh, heals the lame, every disease that you can think of. And so on the one side you have miracles, the other side you have miracles, and then you have this discouraging, draining struggle against the wind and the waves right in the middle. Now, I'm not sure if Jesus intended to be written this way for this purpose, but I'm inclined to think that he's showing us something about life. And that is, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, life is not intended to be just one stream of blessing and miracles without times of struggle. There are people who would have you believe that, 
Uh, there's a lot of preachers you can turn on TV today, and that's the message you will get, that God is in your corner, God is here just to make everything go well, to reach your fullest ambition, whatever your heart desire may be, that's what he's here for. But I don't think that's a lesson that we read in the Scriptures. What we see in the Word of God, whether people want to believe it or not, that if you really are a person who is walking with Jesus Christ, you can't just wave a magic wand and make everything turn out nice. That's not what it means to be a follower of Christ. Just, just imagine the disciples. When they were there in that miracle, thousands and thousands of people, Jesus says, get them something deep. They say, what do you mean get them something deep? A whole year's salary wouldn't buy enough food even if we just gave them crumbs to feed this crowd. Jesus had them sit down. He says, what do you have? They said, we've got a couple loaves of bread. We've got a couple of fish. That's all we've got. This little boy's lunch. Jesus says, good enough. And so he blesses it, and he gives it to the disciples, and he says, now go and share it. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. The disciples had never seen this happen. So I don't know whether they just kind of let the basket go and went through the crowd or whether they went through the crowd with the basket. I'm not sure. But I can just imagine seeing what was brought to Jesus, him blessing it, and every time they passed the basket, like, dear Lord, are you guys seeing this? This is amazing. This person just emptied it. I turned this person. I mean, try to imagine yourself being there. It just would have been this absolutely amazing experience where they would probably just get more and more excited as they went and people were rejoicing. This is incredible. I've never seen anything like this. And there's a tendency sometimes, friends, that once that happens to you, once you experience a touch of God, a, a miracle of God, once you've experienced a season of God's provision, a season where it just seems like everything is going great, everything is turning up roses, you know, life is sweet, life is good, it's very tempting for us to think, well, my problems are solved. This is wonderful, being a follower of Jesus. This wasn't wonderful what God did in that situation. Wasn't it wonderful how God used me to touch that life or heal that body or minister, whatever the case may be. I mean, it's always going to be like this. I mean, all I got to do is just open my hands and it's there. It's very easy to think that. But Jesus says, get in the boat. I can hear the disciples saying, but Jesus, we don't want to leave you alone. Get in the boat. But Je get in the boat and go. And so he insists that they get in and off they go. And the Bible says, now they're out there, they're rowing their boat, and it isn't going to sink, but they're going to discover something about life with Jesus, and that it isn't always a life of blessing and miracles wherever you go. That's not all it is. The second thing to remember when you're stuck in a storm, and I really want you to grab hold of this because you can be sure of this fact, that you may be stressed by the struggle, but you are never outside the scope of God's vision, and of God's care. However stressed you may feel, you are never out of His sight. The different narratives depict uh, Jesus on top of the hill where He had gone to pray. And His purpose for praying, I believe, is not to pray for the disciples. That's not why He's going up the hill. He's had a day of ministry. He's exhausted, but He goes to the hill just to be refreshed in His Father's presence, just to be refurbished because of what He knows is going to be ahead of them. And, and from that vantage point, it seems the Scripture says that Jesus has this full view 
of the entire lake. When you read the narrative, it's interesting that Matthew is very specific. He doesn't say that there were clouds. He doesn't say there was a rainstorm. He just says there was wind. There was wind and there were waves. So it's probably a moonlit night because Mark tells us in Mark 6.48 that Jesus saw that they were in serious trouble, rowing hard and struggling against the wind and the waves. And that really is a beautiful verse because what it says is that Jesus not only sees them struggling, Jesus is sensitive to that. He's sensitive to what they're struggling with and he, he comes to them. When I was preparing this message, I looked into the background of that word translated struggling. Another translate uses the, words, uses the word straining. It's a Greek word, uh, bazanizo. And uh, the word bazanizo was used in different ways in those times, not only in Scripture, but also in culture itself. There's various papyri uh, where you find this word being used. And there's three particular areas where we see this word used in the culture of the times. One way this word uh, bazanizo was used to describe the enormous strain that people face when they are going through stress in legal matters or in financial matters. That, that emotion that people feel uh, when they're experiencing uh, these prolonged sense of an unsettledness in those areas of their lives. So it could be some financial thing, a, a, a legal thing you're going through, some custody battle maybe, or some legal matter, or, or it could be just in your own finances, uh, for whatever reason it may be. But there's just this prolonged season where you're not settled, just things are in the air, and, and just the stress that that brings, it just has a way of draining on you and, and preoccupying you, and oftentimes becomes a wedge in relationships. A second way this word is used is in relation to physical affliction. Uh, afflictions that just won't seem to go away. And so it's not just physically difficult for you, but how many of you have ever experienced a sickness where it actually is emotionally draining on you? It's mentally draining, isn't it? It's not just the physical sickness, but there's just this frustration because it seems like you just can't shake this sickness off. Well, that's the word bazanizo. And then the third use of the word is in regard to what I would call a spiritually toxic environment. It's a word that Peter uses in 2 Peter 2 and 8 when he wrote these words about Lot, the nephew of Abraham in the Old Testament. He said, Lot was a righteous man who was tormented in his soul by the wickedness he saw and heard day and night. And that tormenting, that bazanizo, it speaks to the emotion that sometimes we feel as people of God who live in a culture that's becoming increasingly perverse. And it becomes increasingly stressful as a parent or as a grandparent to realize that your children or grandchildren are growing up in a culture that literally just speaks everything opposite to what you believe and what you know is true. And so you have a concern for your children. Uh, Peter says that Lot was literally just exasperated day after day after day by the culture that surrounded him. You know, it's wonderful uh, to come together and worship. And one of the reasons why we call this a sanctuary traditionally is because it is a place of, of safety. It's a place of retreat. It really is meant to be, if we are ministering people, we come together on Sunday, it's meant to be a place of refreshing. I mean, if Jesus needed to go to the mountain and be refreshed and refurbished in his Father's presence after ministering for half a day, how much more we, as we move through the course of the week, we need to come, have a time to come, and just be refreshed. I hope you feel that when you worship the Lord or you receive his word, that you just feel refreshed in your spirit. And so the Lord refreshes us, he builds us up, and then he kind of sends us back out. 
And so we know what it is to come together on a Sunday morning and experience that, but then we have to go back to work on a Monday. Now, this isn't my case, fortunately, uh, but for some of you, you know what it's like. I mean, you walk into an office place, you walk into a shop, you walk into a, some kind of environment where the air is just blue with profanity. And it just seems like you can't escape. There's just every kind of crude, lewd comment or joke. It's all around you all the time. And, and you don't want to, you know, stand there and point a bony little finger of self-righteousness, you know, and condemn people at the water cooler. But that environment just has a way of, of eating away at you. It has a way of just wearing you down. It has a way of just exhausting you, you know. And you're just like, oh, you know, I love the people here. Maybe you love your job, but the environment is just it's so negative or there's gossip or whatever, whatever the case may be. All of these things, financial pressure, physical affliction, spiritually toxic environments, they're very real. And what I want us to understand is that these are also the kind of things that the devil uses to wear you down. He uses these things to break your will. He uses these things to try to block you from making progress in that thing God is calling you to move forward and you feel like you're not going to get through it. So the question is, well, what do you do? Well, what you need to do when you're stuck in that kind of storm is recognize that though you may feel stress in that struggle, you are not outside of the Lord's sight. You are not too far for him to know where you are and to know that he cares. That's so important, friends. Because one of the main attacks of the enemy when he comes against us is to convince us in our mind that we are not on God's radar. He doesn't see us. He doesn't know what's going on. And he doesn't care. But in the scripture, we see that he does. In fact, I think one of the most tender stories in all the Bible is found in Genesis 16. It's the story of a woman named Hagar. Hagar was a servant of Abraham and Sarah. They basically owned her. But they asked her once if she would be a surrogate to them because Sarah could not conceive. She could not have a child. And, and in that culture, of course, you wanted a son or sons to carry on your name and your heritage and so on. And so they asked her to be the surrogate mother, and so she said she would. So Hagar conceived. She became pregnant. But unfortunately, because she became pregnant, she also became proud. And she kind of felt like, well, my status is changing now because, after all, here I am a woman who can have a child. Uh, my master's wife can't, so that kind of makes me better. She became really snooty, really. I and mean, as you read the narrative, you see that, that Sarah became very frustrated with her, and she actually, uh, she actually treated her very harsh. So harsh, in fact, that the Bible says that Hagar fled, and she escaped or she ran, she fled into the desert. She, she ran away. And so if she thought things were hard under Sarah, now here she is, a woman, by herself, pregnant, in the desert. No income, no resource, no family, nothing, completely alone, left to wander in the desert. The Bible says when all hope is lost, the angel of the Lord appears to Hagar, and he makes two things very clear. Number one, he makes it clear that God is the one who has guided you to where you are, because the Bible says that she was by a stream in the desert. So the Lord had guided her there. He was taking care of her. The Lord was her hope. He was her salvation. He had his hand on her. He's guiding her. And the other thing was he instructed her how to go back to her home, how to be reconciled, and he promised her that her future and the future of her son is secure. And from that time on, the Bible says something very interesting, verse 3, that Hagar used another name to refer to the Lord who had spoken to her. That's interesting. 
from that incident on, from that time, she knew God in a way she had never known Him before. She knew the heart of God. She knew something personal about Him. And the Bible says that she named that place where the water supply was Ber Lahe Roy. In the Hebrew language, it means the well where God saw me. Isn't that beautiful? The well where God saw me. I had nothing. I was nobody. But God saw me. Ber Lahe Roy. You, God, saw me. There's something beautiful in that. Here she is. Now, hear me, friends. She's out here in the wilderness alone. No future, no prospects, no resources. Now, that's bad enough. But on top of that, she knows this is a situation of her own making. She made her own bed. She's the one through her lack of wisdom She's the one through her attitude and her wrong choices. She's the one who put her where she was, completely stripped of any resource, stuck in the desert. But God sees her, and he comes to her, and he makes a way for her to be restored and to prosper. Now understand this, because there's a parallel here for you and me. She doesn't think she's important enough for God to know anything about She's a servant girl. She's not even a good servant girl at that. She was a pain in the neck for the people she was supposed to serve. But God sees her. Birleheh Roy, you are the God who sees me. We come back to Matthew 14, and we see that when Jesus looks over the lake, he sees the disciples, and he comes to them. And the message for you and me very simply is this. Whatever struggle we find ourselves in, God puts us there to settle our soul, not to sink our ship. He doesn't put you there to finish you off. He puts you there to finish what it is He wants to work in you. He puts you there because He wants you to know Him in a way you haven't known Him before. He wants to reveal something of Him that you didn't know. You may have spoke about it. You may have spoken the cliche. You may have rhymed off and talked like a good Christian like everybody else. Your house may look just like anybody else's house, but he knows that your house is built on sand. And he says, I want to establish you. I want to settle something in your heart. And the only way you're going to know this is I'm going to take you away from the ease and what you perceive as blessing and all the good stuff. I'm going to tell you to get into the boat. I'm going to steer you toward a storm. Because I'm going to settle something in your soul. But when he does that, he says, I want you to know that I see you and I know the right time to come and I will be there. I want you to help me just take a second. I want you to receive these words that we're going to speak for yourself. But I want you to say it to the person beside you. Whatever you're facing, the Lord sees you, and he's coming right now. Let me say that again. Whatever you're facing, the Lord sees you, and he's coming right now. Will you say that to a person? Will you encourage them? Will you receive that yourself? Go ahead. I know it's an awkward thing. Go ahead and say it. You're just speaking truth. Encourage the person beside you. Whatever you're going through, the Lord sees you, and he's coming for you right now. Some of you enjoying that too much. 
Don't add anything. You kind of went a little longer than I was. I don't know if you started preaching or you changed the message. There's a saying. What is it? It is always darkest. Try this one. It is always darkest before it gets even darker. You like that one? It is always darkest before it gets even darker. That's what you see in this story. Okay, it's somewhere between 3 and 6. The Bible just says the fourth watch. Other translations say 3 o'clock in the morning. Basically somewhere between 3 and 6. So if it's around 3 o'clock, it, it is the darkest time of the night. But it's moving towards 6 a.m. It's moving toward the dawn. But understand, these guys have been going through this for hours. They're giving it everything they've got, and they have made very little headway. They are completely exhausted. And there's a principle here. It's one I've experienced more than once. You've probably experienced yourself. It is this. Just when you think you have enough problems, something else goes wrong. Something else goes sideways. I want you to picture these guys for a moment. They're rowing, maybe five, six, eight hours. We don't know. Constant wind, constant high waves. They're completely exasperated in every part of their being. And when things couldn't get worse, one of the disciples looks out on the horizon, and I'm sure he said, Oh, Lord, what is that? Guys, you think things are bad now. Don't look. There's a ghost coming. The Scripture says they're absolutely terrified. They have no strength left, and they cry out in fear. It's a ghost. Now, I want you to think about this because we, we read through these so quickly. The disciples didn't have the script. They hadn't read this story before. The disciples had never seen Jesus walking on water. They didn't seen everybody walk on water. It's never happened before. So the logical response when they're out on the sea in this storm, their logical response is, oh no, it's a spirit, it's a ghost, we are finished, we are in trouble. They're absolutely convinced it's not for them but against them and they're terrified. I was thinking of an old song, I can't remember how it goes, but there's an old country song, the gospel quartets used to sing it. Remember that song? Here comes Jesus, Remember? See him walking on the water. You ever hear it before? It just kind of came, I can't remember the tune exactly. Maybe we'll get Pastor Kristen to, to close out with it, but he may or may not know it. But, you know, it's just kind of this upbeat, upbeat, happy song, and, you know, it's just a, a hand clapper, finger snapper. I can promise you it wasn't written that night. In fact, when they're in the middle of the storm, you know, we kind of, I, I got a sixth sense of humor, I guess, or twist it, whatever. But when I'm reading this, I think, you know, when we read this story, we kind of imagine the disciples are rowing, they're soaking wet, they're discouraged, they're tired, and here comes Jesus. And I just kind of picture, you know, the way we read the story is like the disciples jump up and they take off the robes and they start dancing. Here comes Jesus walking on the water. They didn't do that. It didn't happen. They were absolute, sorry for the dance, that was, it's called a jig. They didn't do that. They were absolutely terrified. They didn't know what was going on. All they thought was, here comes more trouble. And I believe, my friends, and I've experienced it, 
that just about the time you think you've had all that you can take and you wonder what else can possibly go wrong, I promise you, Jesus shows up. And when he shows up, it changes everything. And he will show up. He will arrive. I love that Jesus says to Peter, we're not talking about Peter this morning, but I love what he says to Peter. He says, Peter, and he says to the disciples, and he says to you and me, he says, you have so little faith. And I love those words because I love what they really mean. And I love what they don't mean. Jesus, I don't believe, is rebuking them in a harsh way, saying, you've got no faith. Because what he says to them tenderly is, why did you doubt me? Why did you doubt me? You have little faith. Not you have no faith, but you have little faith. And I'm going to grow that faith. And you're going to have more than what you've got. But don't doubt me. I'm here to do something in your life. I'm going to ask Pastor Kristen to come or the worship team. This morning, I just want us to recognize that when you're stuck in a storm, what you really need, you know the solution in a storm? It's just the presence of Jesus. And the presence of Jesus comes into your storm. When you recognize that whatever you are in, He has a plan in that. He has a plan in whatever you are in. And it doesn't mean that He prepared the problem. And again, friends, this goes against our easy believism, Western Christianity today. He hasn't prepared the problem, but He has prepared you to go through the problem, to face the problem. He hasn't designed the problem, but he has assigned for you to go through it. Second, however great the struggle may be, it might sound trite, but it's true. Whatever your struggle may be, you are never outside of his view. He knows exactly where you are. He knows the right time to come, and he will come at the right time. And third, you're going to find that when things look the darkest and they get darker still, that he shows up. I love what John says in chapter 6. He says that Jesus stepped into the boat and get this, immediately they arrived at their destination. Isn't it amazing? Immediately, as soon as he steps into the boat, bang, the storm stops, they're on shore. It's kind of like the Lord saying, okay, boys, lesson's over, let's go. And miracles, again, on the other side. Friends, there does come an end. And when it finally comes, I have found it comes quickly. But it's the getting there that's the struggle, right? I mean, we've all been there. And maybe you're there this morning. It's the getting there that is hard. But remember this. God put you there not to sink your ship, but to settle your soul. That's why he put you there. He knows where you are. He knows why you're there. He knows what he wants to work in you. He wants to strengthen something in you so that you come out on the other side. And you know what? You've actually got a testimony. You're no longer just spouting cliches, easy believism, nice little thoughts. You're actually be able to say, I've met God in this circumstance. This is what he did for me. This is not just what he did for me, 
what he showed me of himself, and I can share from my heart who he is. This is who God is, and he will do this for you. I want to be just sing softly again that refrain, what a beautiful name it is, the name of Jesus. And I want to invite you this morning as we just bow our heads before we leave. I want to invite you just to open your heart afresh to the Lord and just allow the Lord to minister this for a moment, would you? We're just going to sing it for a moment. We're not going to keep you long. I just want it to settle in your heart this morning. What a beautiful name. I want you to invite the presence of Jesus afresh into your heart, wherever it may be. Lord, your kingdom come. Your power be made manifest. Your will be done. Lord, I just, I just invite you where I am right now. And I just pray, oh Lord, just continue to walk with me. Give me grace to walk with you for what you want to work in me. Can we just sing that refrain? What a beautiful name it is. Let's just bow our hearts for a moment before we dismiss.